Welcome, everybody. Hello, folks. It has been too long. It feels good to be back. East Spencer Kite here on Wednesday, June 14th, coming in a little later than normal with one question for every fight for UFC Vegas 75, Vittori versus Cannoneer. Had some stuff to take care of in the front half of the day. Thanks to Josh Emmett for his conversation. Got some other stuff out of the way. And we're finally here sitting down, doing a video for the first time in way too long. I apologize for not pumping out a ton of content last week for UFC 289 in Vancouver. I was on site all week. It was tough to really steal away and, and find some spaces to record stuff. I was also doing things all day. I was working all day, taking care of some stuff, seeing some people, getting stuff done. So I apologize for the lack of content. Won't be on the road for a little bit now. I'm not sure when I'm going to go. I promised everybody last week that it won't be in the case of some people four and a half years since they first met me in the case of others seven years since they saw me last so it will be a shorter window between trips onto the road not going out anytime soon though like in the next month or or anything like that but at some point this year i will get back out there and do the damn thing again because it was a lot of fun to be out there as i said earlier in the week on the podcast it was a lot of fun or or on the takeaways i should say it was a lot of fun and, and meant a lot to me to be at Amanda Nunez's final fight. Thank her again, but we move forward. The UFC has moved forward. The athletes are moving forward. I shall move forward. We here at Keyboard Kimura shall move forward to one question for every fight for UFC v Vegas 75. As I said, Vittori versus Cannoneer. We start in the main event. My question is, can Vittori solidify bronze medal status in the middleweight division? I generally don't really like these kinds of fights. I, I don't necessarily enjoy sort of the, the three versus four matchup in this kind of situation because it feels like you're not really fighting for anything much. But that's just where we're at at middleweight right now because Marvin Vittori has already fought and lost to Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya. Jared Cannonier has already fought and lost to Robert Whitaker and Israel Adesanya, the gold medalist and bronze medalist, if you or, and silver medalist, I should say. If you flip them, if you reverse them, Izzy the gold medalist, Rob the silver medalist, these two battling for bronze medal on Saturday. It's an interesting fight to me. And here's why I, I, I really did like a bunch of what Vittori did in the Roman Delize fight. I picked Delize going into that fight. I thought we would see him grapple. I thought we would see him have success in the grappling realm. We didn't. Marvin Vittori did well. He introduced some leg kicks. We saw a little bit of development. And, and Vittori is a guy to me that I, I feel personally, like I lose sight of the fact that he's still south of 30. And that means something to me because not only does it take till, in most cases, athletes get into their 30s and their early 30s at that, for them to really hit that peak where what we always talk about, about the experience and the talent and all the different things coming together, comes together and, and coalesces. But it's also just about getting over some of that young, youthful brashness. And I think Marvin Vittori may be getting there. I like this matchup because Cannoneer is sort of a, a one concern type of guy to me. You have to worry about the power. You have to worry about the big shots, but he's not somebody that's going to come out here 
and really look to wrestle you. He's not somebody that's going to come out here and beat you death by a thousand cuts. It is primarily going to be big shots, individual shots, even in his win, going the distance against Sean Strickland last time out on the final fight card of, of 2022. It wasn't a high volume, big output fight. It was cannoneer landed the better individual blows. It was a, it was a real tooth and nail kind of fight. And I think for Vittori in a matchup like this, it creates opportunities to go out there and be the volume guy, to go out there and be the pressure guy, because Cannoneer will give you moments to sit and wait. And as much as some people will look at this fight and say, why do I care who gets the bronze medal? I think of it from a yearly competition, yearly tournament kind of setting, or even even an Olympic setting, right? If you're the bronze medalist one year, that means there's only two people better than you. One, that in and of itself is a great achievement. And I think we spend way too little time recognizing those things. Like being the third best middleweight in the UFC is an excellent achievement. Being on that podium, being on the podium in any division is a great achievement. But two, it means there's still room to grow. There's still room to advance. And I think Marvin Vittori, as I said earlier, with that being under 30 piece, maybe this is he solidifies bronze medal and going forward over these next couple fights, we get to that point where he can win the silver and maybe challenge for the gold again. Now, I don't necessarily need to see him fight Israel Adesanya again because I think it goes the same way and looks the same way as each of the first two fights did. Izzy is certainly distance himself in the second fight from the first fight, which was a split decision to going five rounds, earning a unanimous decision win. So I don't necessarily need to see it soon, but this feels like really a rooting point, a rooting opportunity for Marvin Vittori. And they're important things. I think, as I said, I think we spend too little time acknowledging what it means to be the third best fighter in a division and appreciating the value of that because I can tell you that the person that is seventh or ninth or 15th or 36th would really like to be third. And we as analysts and observers need to remember that and need to recognize that more often because we could certainly come in here and say, yeah, these are two guys that have failed in their attempts to win gold. Sure. Absolutely factually correct. But it's just, I mean, lots of people fail in their attempts to win gold and we still watch them fight, still watch them compete. This is a good fight. It's a critical fight for the division, even if it doesn't have immediate championship ramifications and I'm really looking forward to it. Coming event, Armin Saryukin and Joaquin Silva. My question is, will Saryukin make a statement? I don't believe he needs to. I don't believe he has to by any stretch but I'm curious to see if you will. This is sort of, I feel bad for Saryukin. He was supposed to fight Hanato Moikano earlier this year. Moikano got hurt, gets reshuffled back into the deck. This is, I don't want to say the best they could come up with, but Joaquin Silva was, was the one guy to raise his hand and say, I'll take it. I'll do it. And for Saryukin, who is just stuck in this perpetual cycle 
of fighting backwards and nobody in front of him wanting to share the cage with him, understandably, he's kind of stuck in these spots. And I think the only way that he can get one of those greater opportunities is to really go out and make a statement and really put it on somebody so that there's even more sort of force behind the UFC pushing him on somebody. I feel like Justin Gate, he needs sort of, he needs what Rafael, what Rafael Fazeev got through Justin Gaethje, right? At some point, Gaethje realized, I got to fight this dude. I got to fight one of these guys. Let me take the one that's the best matchup for me. And he picked Fazeev. They went out. They did the damn thing. It was wildly entertaining. He got the win. Now he's fighting in Salt Lake City for the BMF title against, against Dustin Poirier in what is right now the clubhouse leader on the, on the board for, for fight of the year. Cause it's going to be right. Like it's, it's going to be, can we just call it now? June 14th, 2.04 PM. That's going to be fight of the year. If it's not, it means there was something awesome, something else awesome the rest of the year. Anyways, that's later. We'll get to that in a couple months time. I feel like Saryuka needs one of those opportunities. He's going to need somebody like Michael Chandler being willing to share the cage with him. And I say Michael Chandler because the third episode of The Ultimate Fighter just dropped yesterday. And according to the fine folks at Bloody Elbow, Conor McGregor has two days to enter the USADA testing pool in order to fight this year. We will be out of the six-month window that he needs to clear to be in the pool in order to fight this year. So maybe Mike Chandler needs a dance partner later in the year and it ends up being Armin Saryuka. I don't think he is a guy that is ever going to push to make a statement. I think he is very much, I've been talking about him this week and sort of throughout these last few fights as akin to Islam Mahashev, the, the current champion and the man he faced in his debut, because I think there are a great deal of similarities there. I think he is somebody that will take finishes and, and finishing opportunities when they are there, but he's not going to overly push for them. And I want to see on Saturday if he can create a couple, if he can really find ways to navigate himself into position where maybe those are there. Silva is a guy you've got to worry about the big right hand. He's put a lot of people down with it. He's put a lot of people out with it, but he's also somebody that is hittable, that is beatable. That This is very much... Saryukin is a minus 1,000 the last time I checked. Understandably, rightfully, I want to see if he can go out and really, really command performance here and make it so that he can't be fighting backwards anymore. Make it so that he's got to be facing somebody, if not right beside him in the rankings, somebody further ahead of him. Middleweight fight, Armin Petrosian. Almost said Saryukin again. Back-to-back Armin's. It's tough. Armin Petrosian. Versus Christian Leroy Duncan. My question is, can CLD live up to the advanced billing? He's in a weird spot right now. Duncan, former Cage Warriors champion, won his debut first round injury stoppage against Dusko Todorovic. Not a lot to take away from it, right? We didn't get a great deal of, of time of him in the cage. They were against the fence. Todorovic went to circle him off with a body lock and hit kind of a sacrifice throw. Something popped in his knee. Fight's done, jam's done, away we go. CLD is one of those guys that, and and fits sort of a little bit of that, that Mike Malott thing I was talking about last week at different points of people kind of sleep on him a little bit because the record looks 
like he's an inexperienced fighter, right? 7-0, 8-0 as a pro. But he had 30-odd fights as an amateur. He had a wealth of amateur experience. And so he isn't really this guy that's coming in just eight fights into it and is still figuring it out. Knows who he is as an athlete. Knows who he is as a competitor in there. And so between the Cage Warrior pedigree, the undefeated record, the hype that's coming in, there's a little bit of buzz. There's a little bit of intrigue. And that that becomes a little bit of pressure. And I want to see in a matchup against a guy like Petrosian, who is solid, but unspectacular in his first couple appearances last year, coming off the Contender Series. Two wins, one loss to Kyle Bahio, who has been very good. I just want to see if he can come out and have sort of that kind of effort that that really justifies and validates some of that hype, some of that advanced billing, as I said. Move on to the featherweight division, Pat Sabatini versus Lucas Almeida. My question is, is where is Sabatini at following a bad loss? And I don't mean bad in the sense of how could you lose to that guy? Because Damon Jackson is certainly not a how could you lose to that guy type of fighter. But bad loss in that Damon Jackson just came out, put it on him, and we were done in just over 60 seconds. And that's one of those things when you're in the midst of a nice run, in the midst of a really good winning streak, all of a sudden it all goes away. And you've got a hit reset now. And you fall back probably two steps from where you were to now facing a guy in Almeida who is making his second appearance in the octagon. And you're the guy that's in need of the regroup, right? Almeida's coming in off a win, knocked out Mike Trezano in his debut. Sabatini's coming in. Those four straight wins have now kind of evaporated a little bit. They're not done, but the shine has come off of them and the, and the umph behind them has lessened. And so this is a really interesting spot. Now, Sabatini is a veteran dude. He's been through some nasty stuff on the regional circuit. You can go and look up his fight where he dislocated his elbow. It was bent at a very strange angle that it should never be at. So he's rallied and come back from that to get his way here. So it's not that he's incapable, but as always with me, I want to see it. Cause the one thing I know about Lucas Almeida is that on Saturday night, Saturday afternoon, he's going to march across the cage and try to do the same thing. Damon Jackson did to Pat Sabatini. And we've seen it happen before, right? Jamal Emmers in Sabatini's second fight in the UFC clocked him, caught him great. And Sabatini was rocked. And in the midst of trying to recover and wrestle through, found a heel hook, got the submission and we were gone, but he was rocked. And Almeida's going to try to do that too. And so I want to see what adjustments come out of that performance, what adjustments come out of dealing with that loss, working in a gym where there's a lot of good names. There's a lot of good people coming through, but we got to build back. It's time to build back here. Sabatini was on the brink of breaking into the top 15. And I want to see if he can just come back with that same steely resolve after this loss that he had beforehand. Move to lightweight Manuel Torres versus Nicholas Moda. My question is, what will we get from Torres in his sophomore appearance? So Torres is a Dana White Contender Series graduate. He earned a first round finish over Colton England on the Contender Series, came out in his debut, 
and stopped Frank Camacho in the first round, which I think is a very good win. Frank the Tank is very dangerous. I think he's Frank the Crank, but the Tank is just better. 28 years old, 13 and two overall, four fight winning streak, action fighter, like absolutely a guy I want to see more of. And this is a good test. Nick Moda is somebody that, again, a contender series grad, but has had a bunch of experience, has been around. And yes, he lost his debut to Jim Miller. Getting knocked out by Jim Miller is a thing that happens to a bunch of emerging talents, it seems. But he's rebounded with a good win since. He's in the he's in the win column. He has more experience. He has more polished, more overall weapons that we've seen thus far than Manuel Torres. But I want to see what this this young, talented Mexican fighter can do. All due respect to Irene Aldana last weekend doesn't derail the fact that this has already been and, and continues to be a really great year for Mexican fighters in the UFC. Not her night last last weekend. You're in there with the greatest of all time. These things happen. But can Torres come out and show that he's more than just more that he's show that he is more than just an all action guy that is killer be killed. I'm fine with killer be killed. And, and don't get me wrong. I, I want to see action fighters. I like it, but there's a little bit of playing with fire that limits how far you can go. And I want to see if he's somebody that can go out there and meter a little bit of that fire and meter a little bit of that aggressiveness and turn it into something beyond just we go out there and it's rock'em sock'em robots and whoever lands first gets the win. The other guy lays down on the canvas and looks up at the lights asking the referee what happened. Certainly in on those fights. Don't get me wrong. You want to give me a bunch of those fights on a Saturday night? Your boy's in, as always. But I just want to see if there's another layer there. I want to see if there's more wrinkles to it, more elements to it. Because I think this is a good opportunity for Torres to show that there is more if there is more. Move to the welterweight division, Nicholas Dalby and Muslim Salikov. My question is which 38-year-old will keep trudging forward? And I say trudging with the utmost respect and appreciation for these two men. First and foremost, as always, not calling anybody old because I got six years on them both, which makes me feel hella old because we talk about these athletes as like, well, they're getting towards the end of their career and I am six years older. Shaking my damn head for those of you that aren't watching on the YouTube feed that are just listening on the podcast feed. Thank you very much. But I am shaking my damn head because I am old. These two guys are, to me, the epitome of, of that staunch veteran presence. And while I'm looking forward to this fight because Dalby is a guy that you you can't tire, a guy that you can't put away very easily, Salikov is always dangerous. We saw that in his last fight against Andre Fiala. We've seen that in several of his fights. He throws spinning shit even at 38, and it still comes quick. I would like to see them more often than not. I would like to see these kinds of guys, these types of athletes, these two men against younger emerging talent because I think they are the perfect veteran test. These, these are old salty dogs that are perfect for facing some of these young bucks that are trying to make their way into the top 15. I love this matchup on Saturday. I'm I'm genuinely fascinated to see how it plays out. I think it can be a fight of the night contender 
Absolutely. I think it will be that much fun. Nicholas Dalby loves getting in fistfights. Muslim Salikov likes getting in fistfights. This will be entertaining. And I hope as we're watching it, and I hope as the broadcast crew is talking about it, they give a little bit of that love to the veteran presence, to these guys that are just here doing it still, grinding it out, putting up wins. Like these aren't two guys that have, you know, struggled to find success and have sort of battered records that are, you know, they're not coming in 19 and 12. They're not coming in 23 and 15. These are two guys that had a lot of success outside of the octagon and have had a a fair amount of success inside of the octagon. Salikov was ranked for a number of, of number of years. He's fallen out now and he's 38. And so it's probably not going to happen again where he crawls back into the rankings, but he's still a dangerous threat as is Nicholas Dalby. So this should be entertaining. And I just want to see which one of them gets their hand raised to sort of claim that I'm the old head that the, that the young cats need to go through spot in the welterweight division. Move to bantamweight, our weekly or one of our weekly bantamweight matchups. Honey Barcelos and Miles John. And my question is, can Miles Johns make a run? So Miles Johns is a guy that won the LFA title, trained out of Fortis for a long time. He is now up at Marathon MMA, which is Trey Ogden's gym in the Midwest region in Kansas, I believe. And he's somebody that me, I I always thought this was one of those guys and, and maybe I'm going to end up being wrong, but I always thought he was somebody that was going to make a nice little run, be a contender, potentially be a contender in this division. So far, that hasn't been the case. He's 29 years old, coming off a win over Vince Morales, but thus far is just four and two in the UFC. The debut was a split decision win out here in Vancouver four years ago over Cole Smith that I know a lot of people necessarily didn't agree with. Lost to Mario Batista, no shame in that. Couple of knockouts lost to John Castaneda, and then the win over Vince Morales, as I said. So it's been sort of uneven through the middle of the pack. Losing to Mario Batista is continuing to age well, as Mario Batista works ahead of them towards the top 15. But I just want to see if, if there's something. I think he is one of these people that has been caught up a little bit in some gym changes and some dynamics changes. He left Fortis to go back home. He is from Kansas originally, moved back home, was going to train at Glory MMA and Fitness with James Krause. That gym obviously shuttered. And so he's had to figure it out on the fly. You know, last time out when he fought Vince Morales, kind of just cobbled a corner together. I believe his dad and his brother were in his corner. His brother, Elijah, a good fighter as well. And so I just want to see Barcelos is a good test. He's a good opportunity to, to gauge where Miles Johns is at. I don't want to say this is the last time we're going to give him that look because he is still south of 30, as I was talking about with Marvin Vittori. So there's still some room. And I think the shifting and moving of, of camps and situations is certainly difficult. But this is this is going to tell us. You go out and beat Honey Barcelos, it means there is room to go forward. We talked about that with Victor Henry when he did it last year. We certainly talked about it in January when Umar Nurmagomedov went out and put a knee on his chin and then hit him with a left hook. And so we'll just see. I've always been high on Miles Johns. I've always expected bigger, better, more from him thus far as somebody that reached the UFC undefeated, beat Adrian Yanez on the regional circuit, beat Levi Moles on the 
on the regional circuit, like fought good competition, felt like a guy that was going to get there and just hadn't put it together, hadn't reached that stage. Let's see if he can. Move to flyweight, Jimmy Flick versus Alessandro Costa. My question is, how does full camp Costa look? So Nono came in short notice against Amir Albazi in his debut at the end of last year. Took him into the third round, got stopped in the third round. Absolutely no shame in it. Regardless of how you scored that fight between Albazi and Kai Kara France, he showed in that fight that he is a legitimate top 10 fighter, top five fighter, excuse me, in the flyweight division. And so for Costa to lose to him, there's no shame. He had a good but not great performance on the Contender Series. Didn't get a contract. He was on episode one last year, the whole B. Joe Pfeiffer, the whole B. Joe Pfeiffer episode. He won the first fight of that episode. Dana wasn't impressed. He didn't get a contract. It is what it is. He's here regardless. And now he's had a camp. And now he's gotten the jitters out of the way. Now he's gotten the first walk over and done with. And so this always feels to me, especially in these positions, like the real chance to make an assessment. I've liked what I've seen so far, but now let's get the real thing because it is a full camp and it's not against a guy that at this point is so far out of his league that it's tough to expect him to look great. And he looked good. There were good moments from Costa in that fight against Amir Albazi. Jimmy Flick is a much more reasonable matchup here, a much more understandable matchup here. And Jimmy Flick comes into this one sort of in a similar position, right? Came back off a big, long layoff, two-year sort of mock retirement, pseudo-retirement sabbatical to fight Charles Johnson and lost very quickly. Now he's got that rust shaken off. This is a dude that is always attacking, flying triangle on Cody Durden in his UFC debut. I'm never going to forget it. I still don't understand how that didn't win submission of the year when it happened because he hit a flying triangle in the UFC, God damn it. But still, flyweights are always entertaining. Costa looked good in his performance against Amir Albazi. I want to see how he looks on a full camp because I think he's somebody that can be not necessarily a contender, but a fun addition to the division going forward. Move back to Bantamweight, Kyung Ho Kang versus Christian Quinones. And my question is, do you know Kang's record in the UFC? Give you a minute to think about it before we break it down. Done? Looked? Sorted it out? Surprised those of you that looked on Wikipedia or topology? Mr. Perfect is 7-3 and three with one no contest in the UFC. Lost his debut, then suffered a no, then... It was a loss, but Alex Caceres popped hot for weed, and so it's a no contest. So he starts 0-1 with a no contest. Since then, he is 7-2. He is 4-1 in his last five. You want to give me 35-year-old veterans like this? I'll take them every day. These are, these are my people. These are my people. If, if there are fighters on the UFC roster that I can claim as my people, these are my people because these are my cards, right? This is very much a Spencer card. And so Kyung Ho Kang is very much a Spencer fighter. Give me well-rounded, dangerous, competent, polished, experienced fighters every day of the week. I know there is nothing 
sexy about him as a competitor in terms of going forward, though I will say a very good looking man, even better when he had the long hair, sharp, sharp, give sexy Yama a run for his money. In my opinion, that's just my opinion, but you want to give me guys like this that can be tests, perfect tests for a young fighter like Christian Quinona is coming in in his sophomore appearance in the UFC off a first round knockout win all day, all day, bring them to me. Again, those of you not watching on YouTube, I am making the bring them all here motion with my hands. We need to respect and appreciate these kinds of fighters more often. It is tough to get seven wins in 11 fights in the UFC. It's difficult to go four and one in five. I don't care who you're fighting. Not slipping on banana skins, not getting injured, not getting hurt, not having a bad night at the office. 80% of the time over a five fight stretch, he turned up, got the damn job done. Shout out to Kyung Hokang. Move to stick around. Sorry, the bantamweight division. No, we moved to the flyweight division. My apologies. Carlos Hernandez versus Dennis Bondar. And my question is, can we get a better sense of where Hernandez fits? Split decision win on the contender series to get into the UFC. Split decision win over Victor Altamirano upon arriving in the UFC. And then thrown in against Alan Nascimento, which is just, that's that's going from the, the kiddie pool, thrown into the deep end. Couldn't swim. Wasn't ready. Didn't have his water wings on. Wasn't, no floaties, no nothing. Was just like, ah, didn't expect this. And got submitted very quickly. And so this fight against Bondar, who is returning for the first time since suffering an arm injury in his fight with Malcolm Gordon a year and change ago, just feels like we clear the decks, we get a real sense here. Altamirano has had some success in the UFC, obviously lost a couple of weeks ago to Tim Elliott, but won two fights before that. And a lot of people would make the argument that he won the fight with Hernandez, which would certainly change where he's at and give us, a, again, a better understanding of where Carlos Hernandez is at. But he's one of these Chicago guys, trains with Mike Valley, Valley Flow Striking System. Want to just see, like, want to just see. You give me a, a, a late 20s flyweight in an interesting matchup, and he's one and one in the UFC where clearly he was in too deep the last time out. Let me see. I'm just, I just talk about it every time I do this show. Give me points of analysis. Give me opportunities to synthesize data. I'm in. I'm in. It's not a fancy fight. It's not a fascinating fight. It's nothing like that. Just let me let me gather data. I'm in. Always. Stick around the flyweight division. Jalgas Zhumagulov versus Felipe Bunis. Bunis. Not sure exactly how to pronounce his last name which tells you why my question is, why are guys like Buenas getting signed? And I, I don't mean that as a knock specifically on him as an athlete, but here's, here's the picture, okay? 33 years old, he'll be 34 in October. 13 and six overall. He's won his last two. He's three and one in his last four, but he's only three and, three and four, excuse me, in his last seven. He just feels like one of those guys that like there's a limited shelf life here. Now, part of the reason he was signed 
He won the LFA title last time out by beating Yuma Horiuchi, who was on road to UFC last season. And so I think there's a little bit of, if you win an LFA title and that's on Fight Pass and you beat a guy that was on Fight Pass on road to UFC, that sort of elevates the cachet a little bit. But it just doesn't feel like the kind of guy that if I'm running the book, if I'm if I'm in charge, if I've got the contracts to hand out, I'm looking for a 23-year-old, not a 33-year-old. I'd rather have the kid that is 5-0 and and getting started than the guy that is 13-6, and and we've probably seen the top end of things. So he had a good win several years ago against Canadian Yoni Sherbatov, but lost to Jussier Formiga last February. And like as great as Formiga was throughout his career and, and still is dangerous, that tells me where the ceiling is. So yes, LFA title. But, and I, f- I forget who I was talking to. I think it was last week in Vancouver talking with Ian about it, but regional titles these days don't carry the same weight, the same heft. Actually, it was John Gooden. Now that I think of it, shouts to John Gooden. They don't carry the same weight and the same heft and the same importance as they did previously. And that's not a knock on any of these promotions. It's just that the landscape has broadened, right? Where there used to be just the UFC to service or the UFC and strike force and early days Bellator, right? Finite number of everything. So regional circuits, regional rosters were deeper and stronger than they are now. Now we have the UFC and the PFL and Bellator and KSW and even more regional promotions that have become quality regional promotions. So you have Octagon and you have some of these other shows like LFA that are out there that the talent disbursement is just spread out even more. And so winning an LFA title now in 2023 isn't the same as winning an LFA title in 2018 or before then when it was LFC And RFA was a separate thing way back in the day. It's the same as cage warriors, right? Conor McGregor winning two cage warriors belts is different than if somebody went out and did it today. It's still an accomplishment. It's still a big thing. It still means something to get to the top of your promotion. But George Hardwick winning his title isn't the same as whoever did it and had that belt five years ago. And that's the thing to me with Buenos here is I get that he's the LFA champ and I have the utmost respect for LFA. I think it is a tremendous promotion, but it doesn't mean the same thing. And I'm very interested to see if he can show something on Saturday that convinces only occasionally skeptical me that he should be here and that this was a good signing and that this was a situation where he's just a late bloomer and just putting it together late and not, we should assign somebody else. Move to the flyweight division, Teresa Bleda versus Gabriela Fernandez. My question is what lessons did these women learn in their debut losses? So Teresa Bleda went out, fought Natalia Silva, looked good in the first round, faded hard, dominated in the second, kicked in the face in the third, done. Gab Fernandez, big, strong, physical, imposing looking woman, 
went out and couldn't stop a takedown to save her life against Jasmine Jasnevisius. Obviously that win or that loss, I should say, continuing to look not that bad as Jazz went out. Got a win last weekend over Miranda Maverick. Earned a place in the rankings. Congratulations to the Canadian joining the rankings. And so I just want to see. It's a it's a relatively quick turnaround for Fernandez. It's been a little bit longer for Blade of that fight happened towards the end of last year. But I just want to see, right? These are these are the things. You went out, you had a loss, you tried, it didn't work out. How did you regroup? What did you rebuild? What did you work on? Did you address those issues that presented themselves? So for Teresa Blada, have you worked on the conditioning? She is a big, strong, physically imposing looking woman. Have you sorted some of that out so that the weight cut and that carrying that muscle around doesn't deplete you as quickly as it seemed to in that fight with Natalia Silva? For Gabriela Fernandez, have you addressed takedown defense and fighting along the cage? getting those underhooks in, getting that opponent up, pushing that head away, whatever you need to do. These are the things that separate folks that come in and have two, three fights in the UFC and folks that have five, six, seven fights in the UFC. And this fight on Saturday between these two is the fight that's going to determine whether there are two or three fight or a five or six fight individual in the UFC. I think both have the ability or the upside, the room to grow to get to being tenured fighters on the roster. But they got to show it. We're, we're at a point. It, it sounds weird to say that we're at a point where they have to show it just two fights in, just in their second fight. We're, we're at the point where they have to show it. And I'm looking forward to seeing if either or both have made those adjustments. Next up, bantamweight division, Dan Argueta against Ronnie Lawrence. My question is, can Lawrence return to form? So he lost last time out. And this feels a little bit similar to what I was talking about with Pat Sabatini. It's not that the one loss ruins everything, takes away everything, diminishes everything. But it sets you back a spot. And so Lawrence had a couple good wins after a great performance on the contender series, but came out last time, fought Saad Yakub Kakramanov, didn't have anything for him. I actually talked to Ronnie Lawrence before this, before this fight story is up now on UFC.com. He was really unhealthy going into that fight, dealt with a myriad health issues for the last couple of years. Says he's got all of it under control, says it's all in check, says it's the best he's felt in a long time. And I'm curious to see if that's the case because at his best in that contender series fight, and even really in his debut against Vince Cachero, looked really good. Looked like a guy that could be not necessarily a capital G guy in the bantamweight division, but somebody that could be fun and get into that second 15 at the, at the least, right? Going to be entertaining, going to be interesting, can do a little bit of everything. Good wrestler, good scrambler, got some decent hands, works with Roger Crawl, so he's got some some good hands. He knows how to box a little bit. And then he looked terrible against Kakramanov. Now we can give him benefit of the doubt on the health side of things. I'm not him. I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you how he felt, what he looked like. All I can do is take that evidence, lay it into this fight against Dan Argueta and see what he looks like. Argueta feels like a good matchup for him. If he is healthy, if he is ready to go, to go out and have a good performance. 
He is a wrestler with heavy hands, but not crisp hands. That's sort of what Lawrence said about him. And I, I tend to agree. He's a guy that's got, looks like he should have power, but doesn't quite convey that power in his shots. And so healthy Ronnie Lawrence, full speed, Ronnie Lawrence, can you go out and, and have one of those performances? He's one of these guys that coming off contender series, Dana went in the back and raved about his performance. It set the bar for him. He was somebody that we were all checking for coming into the UFC. And it was impressive right out of the gate. Can we get back there? That's what this weekend is for him. Last one, light heavyweight division, Zach Pauga versus Modestus Bacoscus. And my question is just who shows more in their, in their sophomore showing. Now I understand this isn't Modestus Bacoscus's second fight in the UFC or third fight, second fight in the UFC, nor is it Zach Pauga's third, second fight in the UFC because Pauga. So that's probably a poorly worded question. Who could just show more here? Let's just edit it on the fly. Who could show more here? So Pauga debuted at heavyweight, got knocked out by Muhammad Usman. Fine. Comes back down to light heavyweight where he's competed his whole career, where he's undefeated, goes out there against Jordan Wright and just kind of grinds him into the fence for 15 minutes. And I mean, I said going into that fight that if you don't get Jordan right out of there, it sort of tells me a little bit about you. Kind of tells me a little bit about you. I'm willing to, as always, give Zach Pauga the benefit of the doubt. Get the first one out of the way. Get back in the win column. Don't take any risks. Now we're settled a little bit. We can try to go forward. Fine. If that's the case, here we go. Bacoscus obviously had a cup of coffee in the UFC before. Won his debut over Andres Michalidis. Lost three straight, culminating in the horrific leg injury against Khalil Roundtree. Rehabbed that, came back to Cage Warriors, won two fights in two months, jumped into a fight with Tyson Pedro in February, went over to Perth, and kicked Tyson Pedro's ass. Earned a unanimous decision win to get back into the win column and moving forward again here in the UFC. And I just want to see which of these two guys at light heavyweight, where it doesn't take a lot to get moving forward, and get yourself in a position where you're fight, facing, excuse me, one of those guys that's got double-digit number next to their name. So can Pauga come out and show more than just the grind you into a pulp against the fence? Can Bacoscus come out and carry on this momentum that he's built over the last year, but also through that win, that short notice, really good gutsy effort against Tyson Pedro? I like opening the fight card with these two dudes. I like that this is the opener. There's some intrigue to the first fight of the night. And I hope you check it out. I hope we have covered the bases that get you excited for this card on Saturday. Again, it is a Spencer card. It's a good main event. And then a whole bunch of prospects and interesting questions. Guys that I'm interested in seeing men and women that I'm curious to see compete. I hope we've piqued your interest with some of it. I will be back tomorrow with 10 things. Two-piece on Friday with the betting show and punch drunk predictions. Thinking about combining them into one, let me know in the comments on Twitter if you want one show or two. Generally, they're about 30 minutes each max, 25 minutes each. Combine them, obviously, they'd be about an hour. Let me know what you like more. I am here for you. I'm glad to be back. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Check out the Substack. QR code is there. Check out the boys at One Bone at OneBoneBrand.com. ESK20 at checkout for 20% off. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Spencer Kite. It's great seeing you again. We'll talk soon.